In the realm of true crime, every crime scene tells a story. Every story has its truths. These are the stories from inside the crime scene tape that separates fact from fiction. True Crime Reporter goes inside the Ella Crime Scene Tape. I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs with decorated former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston. You can follow our journey into darkness and get bonus episodes by joining our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. Our true crime cases are stranger than fiction. With that said, Here's a classic police procedural, a true crime reporter, confidential. Be advised that this podcast is for a mature audience. Some episodes may contain profanity and graphic descriptions of violent crimes. 46 years after the abduction, torture, and murder of a 17-year-old girl, cold case detectives with the Fort Worth Police Department arrested a 77-year-old man and charged him with her capital murder. Retired homicide detective David Thornton helped start the cold case unit. At the outset, investigators faced 750 unsolved murders dating back to 1966. Thornton put into motion an effort that is still solving cold cases in which the original investigation failed to produce sufficient evidence to support murder charges. I'm Robert Riggs here with former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston. In this edition of our True Crime Reporter Confidential, we take you inside homicide investigations and cold cases. It is nothing like what is portrayed on popular TV shows. That's Hollywood. This is real life. So, David, you started the cold case unit at the Fort Worth Police Department. What was going on that there was a need, and how does something, how does a case go cold? Well, I've already always been interested in, in cold cases ever since I started with the police department and worked in patrol, and I'd go out on different types of murders. And, and as years went on, I've always wondered what happened to them. And when I went into homicide in 1987, I would... Uh, run across those that I had been in patrol and even before I got to the department, and they, they always piqued an interest to me. Um, I only worked one when I was a detective because there was no organization of, of unsolved murders at that time. Um, so when I, uh, when I became a supervisor, I... Uh, I always said the first thing I'm going to do if I become a supervisor is make a cold case unit. And it was a miracle I even became the supervisor in homicide because that never happened. That was something I was a detective for 
12 years. Uh, I think you were pretty good. <laughs> My guess is. Uh, well. He wrote the book I, on it. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. it that, that just didn't happen. And I took the promotional test, sergeant's test, too, fully expecting to go to patrol and do my time there, hoping maybe I could get back at some point. But uh, I... Uh, uh, but you wanted to form the unit. Why? Because of what you'd seen or because of what might can happen, the I good things that can happen? Because we had over 750 unsolved murders. Oh, my God. And I, I thought that, that those need to be addressed... When I was a detective late 80s through the 90s, there was just no time to do that. We, uh, the Fort Worth PD homicide at that point, in 1986, we were the murder capital of the United States per capita. Um, and we continued to be high on that list. And, and even more so, what we led the nation is was cases per detective. We had, uh, in 1986, 202 murders, uh, which doesn't sound like a lot compared to New York, but when you only have eight or nine detectives, it's a lot. And even through the 90s, we carried cases, uh, 20 and 30 cases per year per detective. When you talk to the so-called experts now about how many cases a detective should maintain in a year, they say about five. So... We're, we're carrying 20 and 30 cases apiece. And is that, so the a huge number, a shocking number of unsolved cases in Fort Worth, Texas, in that time frame, is that a result of manpower, I'm sure it's many things, manpower shortage, in other words, too many cases to work. Was it a product of just sheer volume? In other words, uh, the time it takes to work a crime scene, to start the detective investigation process, and then here comes another one, just layering on top of it, for instance. Was it that sort of thing, or was it, uh, for instance, some unqualified detectives that were new and didn't know what they were doing yet, or no, a combination? I, I think it's a combination mm -hmm. of, uh, particularly at that time, it's the caseload that, that got most departments, and that, that it wasn't just us, it was around the country. There so many cases apiece that some just slipped through the cracks, and they ended up in the what we call the unsolved room. And even then, they were just in boxes. They weren't organized. They were just in there, and you were lucky to be able to, to go in there and find what you were looking for. How did you prioritize? How did we prioritize? Yes. Well, when I, when I became the supervisor in 1999, I assigned cases, unsolved cases, cold cases, to existing detectives. I was first a sergeant in the major case unit, and um, from there I went to homicide. But even when I was in major case, what, our, what the goal of major case, the main function was critical police incidents, police shootings, um, people who were injured, both officers and, uh, you know, people of the general public. So that, that, that was the goal, the, the function of major case. So I thought, well... You know, it's not like we get those things every day. So I started assigning cases to the major case detectives, and they actually liked it. I What's mean, they, they liked working them, and uh, we solved some, including a 1969 case wow. um, from major case. But when I went to homicide, there still wasn't really an organization to it. 
And um, when I went to homicide, they never, the department did not think a cold case unit was necessary. They just thought it, uh, funds and money could be better spent elsewhere. So I was determined not to flinch on this. So I started assigning cases to existing detectives in homicide along with their regular caseload. Now, not all of them really liked that, but they did it anyway and were really had some success doing that. So we had major case doing it and we had homicide doing it. So is cold, uh, is cold case, uh, that term, which is literally makes television shows now, is that term applied to a case that has not been solved for a certain period of time, or is it is there some other factor, first of all? And, and Robert asked that as well, and it's, um, there is, I don't put a time limitation on it. I don't say after a year, I don't say after two years, a lot of departments do that, um, but I've had the experience that a, a case can go cold in a matter of months. So and that that term then to me means no current clues, which are going to lead to a resolution. We've yes. sort of worked the leads that we have. We're out of lead, out of good leads. Yes. And yeah. is is there a rule of thumb of when if you don't get it solved by X number of days after the murder, it's going to go cold? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Because the first 48, I don't know if you're familiar with that oh, yeah, show. sure. Which, uh, which purports, and I've always heard this, that the first 48 hours, if you don't solve it, then your, your ability to solve it is reduced greatly, which I think is BS, to put it mildly. Um, Makes a good TV show. Yeah, a good TV it. show, and it's something that's been going on, you know, that, that, Theory has been going around forever, and I don't know who came up with it, but it certainly didn't apply to our department um, because we had a bunch of bulldogs who, who, once they get a hold of something, they they wouldn't let it go. Sometimes clues yeah. aren't even available for two or three days, and forensics or an autopsy, for instance, sometimes you don't have it for, well, <laughs> which may be your starting point. Sometimes, uh, true, and you know you don't know every every witness you have doesn't necessarily hang around and um, mm -hmm. want to talk to you, you know, at the scene of the murder. So, you know, in that respect, um, no, I put no limitation on that. I've known some detectives who, you know, didn't always give it their full attention in cases like that could go cold sooner than later. I want to give some history here, though. I, I think the listeners, when they heard that caseload and the number of cases are like, got to be astonished. Bill, this coincides 1986 up to the 90s of what you and I were doing. The Texas prison system swung open the doors. We had a revolving door system going on to relieve prison overcrowding. Uh, they didn't ever tell police departments or the public this. And, you know, I expose there were, good Lord, upwards of 85 former death row inmates out had been paroled, one of which Kenneth McDuff, who, you know, if you want to hear the first season of True Crime Reporter, and you'll hear about Bill and the manhunt and the corruption that went on behind that. But they had opened the floodgates on you. That explains these big, big numbers. Did you have any idea, though, that that was going on at the time or wondering where are all these cases coming from? Um, yes, that had an effect. Um, 
in my in, in our experience, a lot of the cases, um, late eighties on through the nineties, were as a result of that eastward progression from L.A. and the crack epidemic um, that started there and then basically infested every good-sized city from here to the East Coast. So that's where a lot of our, that that increased it so much and almost, um, it, it, it didn't eliminate the other types of murders. We still had plenty of, you know, robbery murders, sexual assault murders, uh, people burglarizing houses, plain old arguments and fights. People kept doing that, but with the, the, the wave of the, the crack epidemic and what came along with that was really instrumental in building up murder rates in, in every city in the U.S. And you may know, Robert's speaking about the Texas prison system in the 80s and 90s, which seems a long time ago, but uh, not so long ago. We're still feeling the effects of it. And in in what he learned and publicized uh, that changed everything was that Texas inmates could get, let's say, 20 years for a crime, uh, whatever crime, drug dealing, it could be a, a robbery or whatever. And if they got 20 years, they might serve three. They might serve uh, five years of a 40-year sentence. And I, I prosecuted many drug dealers in, in federal court who were on three and four state probations at once. Absolutely. And they were on probations because they didn't want to send them to prison because what good would it do because they got out so early. There was, there was no such thing as the classification of the 3G offenses and others, which now in Texas require violent crime defendants to serve 50% or more of their sentences. That didn't exist. That exists now because of Robert Riggs, quite frankly, and with side credit to Kenneth McDuff, the killer because everyone in Texas was shocked to learn that there were death row inmates, former death row inmates out amongst us, and that there were people that served a fraction, a thimbleful of a sentence and committed another one and went back in and served another fraction. And tie that with what you're talking about, about the drug dealing mm -hmm. epidemic that swept our way. It's related because instead of getting a substantial sentence for a major wholesaler, let's say a violent wholesaler of drugs, um, They'd get, they in that they were the first ones out. <laughs> They'd get ten years and be out in sometimes eleven months, and so that all played into it. But when you talk about those numbers, it's astonishing, it's frightening that you had the concept and you stuck with it to create that unit and to start weeding your way through. How did you then? Let's say you have the a room with three hundred boxes. How did you pick? Mm -hmm. or assign or prioritize within the boxes of the old cases? Um, once we got the um, unit established, um, which um, we applied for a grant, a state grant, um, in 2004, and ended up um, as the number one um, grant submitted to uh, the governor's office. And it, it was a cold case grant, and it had money to do, it had money for equipment, it had money for one detective, 
which, of course, 750-plus cases wasn't to um, – he's not going to be able to do them all. But the first thing we did, once we got that grant and once, once we got the detective um, picked and, and settled in, and he was an ex-homicide detective, he was an ex-partner of mine who had, had moved to a different unit, what, what we did was we prioritized. We started going through every case and prioritizing it. And I wanted to keep it simple, so we um, prioritized it as um, – Priority one, priority two, and priority three. Is that most likely to be solved? Still one, clues? One is most likely to be solved. Two is um, the, the and I could go through everything we looked at. We, we had a checklist of things that, that would tell us that it was more likely to be solved or less likely to be solved or priority three being a, a, a case that, people had worked on throughout the years, I mean, and just had worked every lead in them, or there were no leads in, there was no physical evidence, there was no potential DNA there, there was no, there were no witnesses, they were, not that we didn't look at those and try to solve them, but that was... You had um, so much money, so much manpower, you had to prioritize. Yes, and um, it was... uh, the first year after we did that, after we made the, um, and I put every case in these white folders by year, and the priority would be listed on the case. So every unsolved case from 1988 would be in one book, and so on and so forth. Um, and the priority would be at the top of the case summary. And that case summary would have how many witnesses there were, what kind of physical evidence, are there any suspects, were there any suspects, everything you would want to know about that case to say, yes, let's start here. Um, that first year, we solved 21 cases. Um, and we didn't, you know, some of these more high-profile cases that, that we looked at um, that had been um, looked at throughout the years, you know, people would go back and look at them, try and solve them or see if there was anything new on them. We concentrated on other cases that were less than high profile people who didn't make the news all the time. Uh, the victim wasn't, you know, your normal victim that would be on the 10 o'clock news to start off. And we started with those and, I mean, we were like a bulldozer those first few years in solving those types of cases. I wonder about your approach, uh, Robert. Uh, you know, my role in all of this was a pro- state prosecutor and then a federal prosecutor for a long time and then uh, was fortunate enough to help solve some cases as a private attorney to try to gather the evidence privately without any state authority and refer it to, for prosecution. The Baptist preacher is one of those but this is a way I looked at things, and I wonder, honestly, how you feel about this. In looking at an older case, um, in reading a file, talking to people, I, th- I found it helpful to come up with a theory of what may have happened and who may have done it and why. So just to have something, just to have something to start with a framework, mm-hmm. but, but be completely willing 
to change that theory when evidence came in. In other words, I just found that mentally helpful to me to have a starting point, which was, okay, well, they said, believe it or not, the son of this woman was very uh, um, angry over not being included, you know, in her estate or something. So we had a kid with motive, but maybe we can't prove. But that's a starting point. At least we have someone with motive. How do you feel about that as a concept? Because you you have yeah. a thousand times more experience than and I. And how did you do it? I think that's a natural way to look at things. You want to look at something and say, well, we're halfway there. All we got to do is get the rest of the way there because the original detective identified this person or persons, and and it makes the job easier for us. Uh, of course, we tried to look at things from scratch and see how we got to this person that we got there legitimately. Or was like it just it a presumption that was unfounded, maybe? Yes. Um, so we tried to start from scratch and build up from there. The cases that had um, information that we knew we could follow up on, or that was just the beginning of the time where DNA was really starting to... I was going to say, um, how much did the change in technology help? Well, I... Touch of DNA and DNA particularly. I think it, it has a lot to do with it, particularly now, and particularly in high-profile type cases. But I'll tell you this, when I, when I retired um, in, uh, at the end of 2010... We had solved, since we started the cold case, I call it an effort because we had the detectives at the beginning. We didn't have a unit. Mm -hmm. We finally got the unit in 2004, and we kept that unit going for six years, which was not usual that the, the, the uh, governor's office, the criminal justice office, would let it go that long. But we were having such success uh, in doing that, that uh, we were solving so many cases a year in 2008, we got another DNA grant from the federal government. Um, but to answer your question, when I retired, I did a analysis of how many cases were solved by what means. And we had solved 114 cold cases um, when I left. And um, these are the stats that I came up with. Enough evidence at the time. We found cases where there was enough evidence at the time that the, the case could have been prosecuted. It just wasn't for whatever means. So we easily submitted those. Those were but a small amount, 2% of the cases, but they still were there. Witnesses who we already knew about from the case and talked to them again, and they provided additional information, that's 22%. So we went back to the witnesses, and they were not completely forthcoming at the time. Which happens when time helps, mm -hmm. time hurts and time to helps in murder cases. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, at, at, at the time it's, you know, for one reason or another, but we still had to overcome that issue that they had at the time. And, of course, when you go to trial on it, they're going to pick on those witnesses who didn't really tell the whole story to begin with. New witnesses located, people we found by talking to old witnesses. They identified new witnesses, and nobody had ever talked to them. Forty percent of the cases we solved were because of new witnesses. That's going to leave a small percentage wow. for DNA. 
suspect confessions. When we had a suspect, why not go out and talk to them? Went out and talked to them, they confessed on the front porch. You know, or maybe we arrested them and, and got them in and then they confessed. But most more often than not is we just go out and talk to them and they either, we either surprised them so much by being there um, that the shock just, you know, they just blurted out what the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> yeah, doggone the truth. Um, and that was almost 10%. Uh, DNA um, was at the time 19% when I left. Is That's the percentage of cases we saw by DNA. Why is it? Is it television <clears throat> that draws us to the concept that everything can be solved with the DNA, that it's infallible, and that uh, everyone is either going to be found guilty or cleared by DNA? Why is that so prevalent in people's minds? Well, I, I've heard present-day young detectives thinking, I don't have a case if I don't have DNA. Right. Yes. And, and just to move forward a little bit, when we did the HEAT project, the training project, it, we got the impression that if there was no surveillance video, if there was no DNA, um, then they didn't know where to start. I mean, it, it was like the first thing you look at when you get to a scene is where's the cameras or where's the DNA. And, a, and it is a misconception. Although DNA is coming a long way, particularly with this forensic genealogy, which we solved one recently with that, and actually two. But, yeah, it's a misconception, and you see it on TV. People watch TV. I mean, they call that the CSI effect. It's people watch on TV, and they think we can do things that we can't do. It seems like that idea, and it, it does seep down to young officers who want to be investigators who are also part of the reason some of them even want to get into law enforcement are these shows. And then once they do, they think, Oh, I'm going to be in that world. And the young, some of the young investigators and certainly many watching think that yes, you are at a computer and you're, you're running things on screens. It's kind of like I had a, uh, federal fugitive uh, many years ago who was a murderer and a terrorist. And a, un, in a, the case, unfortunately, was assigned to a deputy U.S. marshal who felt that she really never, never needed to leave the office. Uh, she would uh, tell us uh, great things about how she was going to catch him, as I say, by pecking on her computer. And she was a big computer pecker, but she wasn't much <laughs> of a street uh, investigator. And so... In, Back to, to your world, there's nothing that beats hard work going out, looking at things, measuring things, taking pictures, talking to people in the world of homicide investigation and the world of fugitive tracking. You've got to get out amongst them. We used to call it uh, kicking over trash cans. I love that it's, expression. It's getting, getting out, getting dirty, going through the alleys, going through, you know, finding people we had to talk to. And uh, there, you know, when we were doing it, there was no um, time for the office. You know, the time for the office was make a few phone calls and, and hit the streets. So that 40% figure of finding new witnesses, does that say the original detectives didn't do a good job, didn't have enough time? 
What's is there a common denominator there? Why these things went cold, and you can come in later and solve them. I'm not going to blame it on the detectives because on any murder scene, um, people just they're not going to hang around. You know, they just don't. They don't want number one. They don't want to get involved in it, mm-hmm. and they don't want to be seen as a snitch or somebody sure. who's talking to the police. So they can, you know, they can just hook them before the police even get there or they can stand around and, and watch and say, I don't know anything. And, you know, the police are going to leave them alone. So it's, um, you know, it's a combination of all that. And it's mainly that nobody at the time said they were there. And, and that's a main thing that, w- that we tried to do. And main thing that we taught in the, in the heat project seminars is, you ask a witness not only what he saw or she saw, but what this witness saw, what this witness saw, what they could have seen. So we're, we're basically playing every witness against each other and trying to find witnesses who uh, didn't want to be found. But, but we're in a position to see or hear. Yes. And I want to explain the heat project you're talking about. You literally have written the book on murder investigations. I've got it here, 640 pages, Real Murder Investigation. Explain to us how, I mean, this really is a how to investigate a homicide and it's not CSI. I mean, I laugh out loud when I see CSI of, you know, a dozen detectives assigned to one case and the sophisticated lab running forensics and everything. And unfortunately, I do think it has set an expectation with the public of injuries, injuries, oh, yeah, injuries that well, this should be easy to solve or this should just be clearly apparent to a jury. Why? Why hasn't that book been done over the last 50 years? It's amazing. Yeah, six, this is an amazing book. Well, it, I mean, there, there are books that people have written, and I'm not going to say that is the book. It is, I'll say it, it is. is. Well, we'll say it is. <laughs> it is my way. That's the way uh-huh. I did things and, and things about my career. So, But it's without, if I may say, cause, because you won't, it's without glamour. It's without cliche. It's a common sense difficult day in day out way of handling things that for for, in, for instance um, you talk about crime crime scenes and importance of crime scenes I think and again uh, my experience pales my experience is as a prosecutor so it's different and it pales compared to yours but I think and not talking about your department at all just talking about generally and generally small departments I think a lot of cases aren't solved in the first not only 48, as they say, but the first six months because attention wasn't paid to the crime scene in the first 10, 15 minutes. What, what about that? I know it relates somewhat to your book. What about the, what about the first, what about the initial police response or even citizen response to a crime scene and how that's critical? Well, once you miss it and leave it, there is no going back. So that's the attitude that you have to take when you process a crime scene and think of it as there is, there's something there. Now, do we have the technology and the means to find it is a different story. So it could be so minute that there is this, that minute drop of blood in the middle of the victim's pool of blood that 
you know, we, we, it's not going to do us any good because we're never going to find it because we're not going to collect that whole pool of blood. So we tried to stress that money is not an object. Um, you know, I had people who would, you know, even crime scene officers who would say, well, why are you collecting this? Why are you collecting all this? Because, you know, you're never going to send it out for all the DNA. You know, it costs too much and it's too time consuming. So let's take what is obvious. Well, you know, you're limiting yourself. You're going to take what's obvious, but you also need to take other things that will um, benefit you or could benefit you and not worry about the money. Now, let's worry about the money later. I mean, that's, that's, but, you know, we had crime scene also. We had some really good ones, really good ones. And then we had some that, you know, were um, just like any profession. Uh, or, a little laziness can really hurt you. Yeah, and, and especially when you do it for so many years, it's it's like you it's like, almost like robotic. You know, let's go in there, let's look for DNA because that's what's going to make the case anyway. Well, that no, that's not true because there's a lot in crime scenes that is not scientific. That is, are are things that set that case apart from another one. It's all individualistic. So, you know, to say, you know, if we don't have DNA or fingerprints, we don't have anything. And plus DNA is, is, is useful only to an extent, as you well know, as, as you both well know, is because we, DNA only puts somebody in a particular location. It doesn't say exactly what they did. And particularly if they had a, a reason they could have been there, a, Absolutely. A pool guy who may have committed the murder but was also in the house at the time when he was presenting his bill. Well, of course my DNA was in, in the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robert and I did a, uh, if I may say, pretty fantastic story about a Baptist preacher that murdered his wife and faked it as a suicide. And this has to do with crime scene, a question for you, but also sort of a presumption that is so dangerous to presume anything at a crime scene or early on in a homicide case. This guy was a Baptist preacher. He called 911. He acted as if he was doing CPR. He, when the police arrived late at night, he gave a brief explanation. Gosh, he's a preacher. Of course, we believe him, and it's awfully late at night. And one of our supervisors on the scene is sort of afraid of bodies, believe it or not. So they had just a few snapshots of the crime scene. And there was a typed, I say, typed suicide note, which I'd never heard of, and a bottle of pills and a computer and a printer. None of those were taken, of course. We had to privately, police didn't do the work, we had to privately try to establish the suicide note, the availability of those pills and all that. That was a terrible, I mean, terrible crime scene job but they went into it presuming something, uh, basically the word of the, the killer. How, how do you um, avoid presuming something happened when you first, as a detective, not a responding, let's say, uniformed officer, but as a detective, how do you avoid presuming something? Well, it's hard, and hard not to once you kind of get a look at the scene, but uh, uh, you bring up suicides, and, and I always said that... Uh, 
this is a murder until you prove it's a suicide. Thank you. Okay. There you yeah, go. Um, and and the reason I did that and, was... You know what? That's really rare. And I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, that is rare for someone in in homicide work to think that way. I'll tell you why I say that. Because I've seen many cases, it's so much easier to work a suicide. Of course. It's, uh, mm-hmm. However, the repercussions of not conducting a thorough investigation, even to a suicide, can get, can give you headaches for years from people in the family and and other friends and things that, well, this person would, they just wouldn't do that. They just, there were no signs and they just wouldn't do it. So, you know, why not make it easy and start at the beginning, not presuming something. And that goes for murders too. Don't presume that just because, you know, you have a broken window and um, think that's an entry point. Don't presume that's always the case. I'll be back after this break. Hello, this is Robert, and I want to ask a small favor. Will you please tell your friends who love true crime to follow the True Crime Reporter podcast? As you know, it's one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement experts, victims, and even convicted criminals. And please sign up for my free newsletter. The form is on every page of my website. Finally, I am so thankful to my Apple listeners who have given the podcast five-star reviews. Your reviews on all of the channels are extremely helpful in spreading the word about this podcast. Now, back to our episode. In this case, this is a small-town department, did not have the competence, probably arrogance too you can't don't tell us outsiders how to do this but in your real murder investigation book with the heat project you're we're act, you were out trying to train smaller departments that don't have the the know-how yes we were aimed at departments who um didn't have the resources and who relied mainly on the rangers um to handle their investigations and we thought that uh, if if you're, I mean, that's fine for them to help. I mean, they have all kinds of resources, DPS does. So, you know, it, it helps in that respect. But I always thought that, you know, Rangers is a good outfit, but they're no better than you are. They're no better than anybody. So um, learn how to conduct your own investigations and, uh and you'll be better off for it. That was the aim of it. Interestingly, the FBI original profilers that I knew, they always talked about victimology. To find the serial killer, or the they needed to know more about the victim. Certainly. That's always where you start. Explain that to our listeners, because you don't see that in the crime shows. No, I mean... the, the Oh, it, it's not as glorious or interesting... <laughs> Let's talk about a serial killer and profiling the serial killer, but yeah. someone that, uh, as you said, got their hair done someplace and and always had a, one of the other hairdressers comment to them inappropriately, that might be helpful. And we wanted to, by doing that, we wanted to make such a pattern to 
as to make it impossible not to know where this person ran across mm. their their killer. So that that's what we're trying to do. It may not have been where they got their hair done. It may have been on their way to where they got their hair done. And, you know, you, you all know as well as I do, serial killers a lot of times go um, hunting and tracking and find somebody they like, follow them home, know where they live, do their surveillance, and so on and so forth. Um, but uh, that's the way we tried to approach it. Well, you know, Kenneth McDuff, our notorious serial killer, to our friend John Moriarty, the key investigator that worked with you in prison before he's executed, he described it as a hunt. That was his words. I'm hunting. Would drive hundreds of miles on the hunt. And that's that's a serial killer for you, too, that that drives. McDuff was like a, a wolf, more so like a shark, a great white shark that patrols thousands of miles of oceans. And he uh, he knew some of the victims by acquaintance, some not at all. And there would have been no way to work the victim side of it. But that's very rare. It, I mean, I think, correct, a serial, that type of approach where you have someone like a shark, you know, coming out of the wave after a seal and breaching and falling back in and swimming off, that's pretty rare, right? Normally the victim, normally the path of the victim leads to the where it crossed the killer. Yes, you just have to know where it, it, it crosses somewhere. When, when we were uh, uh, in the cold case unit, we solved um, several serial killer cases. Uh, one guy to this day, his name's Curtis Don Brown, is uh, responsible for several more than what we have him on. And uh, I bring him up um, because during the uh, mid to early, mid, late 80s, Fort Worth had a issue with uh, dead women. And we were getting dead uh, uh, female victims uh, across the city very often to the point where you know, the, the newspaper, Star-Telegram, was running things like, do we have a serial killer? Because there were so many of them. And once we started that cold case unit and went back and started looking at, at those things, we identified Brown. He was already in prison for killing a, uh, a nurse uh, who had left her apartment window cracked that much. About mm, um, an inch. And he had no regard. He had no care about who saw him. He went in there, drug her out. And as this was late at night, but drug her across the parking lot to a field across the street where he raped her and uh, beat her to death with a rock. He, uh, he was already in, in prison on that. We identified him on two more. Uh, one, an 18-year-old girl who was just walking down the street the other girl who had left the old Caravan of Dreams, which is now Riata, downtown Fort Worth, the restaurant, and uh, her, her car was found in the middle of the road several miles from there, and we found her the next day in the Trinity River. So uh, uh, a guy named Juan Segundo was your typical predator, um, and he killed four women. And uh, 
and rape several more uh, just by finding a way into their house or apartment. But as good as they were and the fact that they were predatory didn't keep you from solving it. Why was that? Well, Juan Segundo, at the beginning, um, his first victim was an 11-year-old girl in sleep mm. in her room. The rest of them were adults that he um, uh, found on the street, um, including a, a black woman who, at the time her body was found, had KKK spray-painted on her backside. Um, an obvious diversion. But wow. Uh, wow. Mm. but w- when we finally got him on all four of those murders, and he's on death row right now. Thank God. Um, he was a friend of the family of that 11-year-old girl. So that's where mm-hmm. he was able to, and he even talked to the detective, the original detective on the case. You Could you say he messed up by knowing a victim? In, in, a, in a way, in other words, if he kept it, complete strangers on every occasion would have been more difficult. You found a little path that crossed, didn't you? Well, that, in hindsight, yes. Now, that, now he was solved by DNA, by mm. CODIS hits through DNA. And that's what, when we started the cold case unit, we concentrated on, on DNA cases and cases mm. that, were, um, that could be solved by DNA. And when you say CODIS, there's a there's a database of DNA, particularly of prisoners, correct? Right. Where the there's now a policy to take DNA from almost everyone convicted. Yes. And that's fed into a system, and you can. Yes, there's a national and state and local system. This cold case unit is still paying dividends long after you're gone. You know, there's been a case here in the news just recently out of Fort Worth that was about uh, Glenn Samuel McCurley. 77 years old, he's indicted on a charge of capital murder. They've charged him for abducting a 17-year-old junior in high school as she from her car after a Valentine's Day a dance, and he tortured her allegedly and murdered her. You familiar with the, the case? You remember this? Yes. Case? So give us some insight into that and the others of how – after, it's been 46 years later. Well, um, McCurley, uh, his name was in the case file for 46 years. And the reason his name was in the case file, and in these cold cases, I will say this, you know, that they are so educational that you're able to, for one reason or another, figure out who did it but also how they came upon their victim. But his, his, uh, his name was in there. Uh, his, the, the case was solved um, by uh, forensic genealogy. Um, Why was his name in there originally? It, his name was in there because at the uh, time of the murder, the victim was with her boyfriend. They had just gone into a bowling alley to use a restroom. They had had been at the Valentine's Day dance. Um, When they came out, they were sitting in the car and the passenger door flew open and this guy produced a a 22 caliber Ruger and started pistol whipping the the boyfriend, drug her out of the car, 
um, drug her to his car and uh, took her away. And she was found in a, a culvert uh, near Lake Benbrook um, a few days later. Um, but his was name he? was in there because the detectives at the time had researched everybody who had bought a 22 Ruger um, in a certain time period Excellent. before that. And his name was in there. They talked to him. He said it had been stolen, you know, before he doesn't have it anymore. It's been stolen and so on and so forth. So they had, you know, three or four pages of people like that. So describe that, that genealogy. Well, this came all, this all came about after I've left and it wasn't, it it doesn't go along with your standard DNA testing like I'm used to. This is uh, perhaps how the Night Stalker was captured in California. Yes. Yes. Go ahead. I'm sorry. He uh, basically, it's, um, it, it works off these ancestry databases where people look for relatives. They submit a saliva sample and, um, whether it's Ancestry.com or 23andMe, all those places like that, they'll submit it, they'll run it, and then they'll come back with relatives. And in this particular case, um, the detectives did that, and this detective hadn't was a reserve officer. He hadn't been in there for less than a year. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, we work out together, and he approached me one day and said, you know, I really want, I'm really into cold cases. You think maybe you can get me a spot in there just so I can help out? And uh, I went to the supervisor, the homicide supervisor. I know him real well. And he said, sure, you know, we can use all the help we can get. So he got moved from the patrol division to the uh, cold case unit. Had to get the notion for the genealogy. Well, he, um, I mean, that's been around a while. Right, it's right. Not, I mean, the homicide, you know, there's one guy in there who solved the, the murder of an 11-year-old girl who, uh, by that same um, method. Yeah, the same DNA method. Um, and that was uh, three or four months ago. Or, I'm sorry, it was longer than that. It was a couple of years ago. But anyway, he uh, <clears throat> when he went in there, this is the first case they gave him, Carl Walker. And and there have been, I don't know how many people who've worked that case, who've looked it over and worked it. And uh, he would call me and, you know, we'd talk about it. He'd, you know, say, hey, you know, am I, am I on the right track? Because he was really doing it by himself. They, they didn't tell him much of anything, how to do it or what to do. or And I, I uh, you know, I said, you know, the boyfriend was always a suspect. Of course. Um, yeah. And they thought, um, so many people thought it was him. And um, the detective, the reserve officer, also thought that from the beginning. Have a, It's okay <clears throat> to have a theory, but be willing to have an open mind. Right. And as a matter of fact, he went on a uh, one of those murder mystery shows. I can't remember the name of it. it it's a new one. Mm-hmm. That a guy from California, the guy actually who solved the the Night Stalker, Night Stalker yes, now has a, a TV show. There you go. And uh, so 
Jeff went out there and and uh, was on the show and and even that show and I watched it. The the detective, California detective, who's now retired, but he was really into the boyfriend, really um, thinking that he had something to do with it. Well, so when Jeff and I were talking about it, I I said, man. It could be out of a lot of people. He's been polygraphed like three times. A lot of people have run him through the ringer. Um, why don't you look at the dress again? Because her dress had been ripped and torn, and and it had been six or seven years since they tried to do some DNA on it. Um, so he agreed and said, "Okay, I'll look at the dress again." and and even our crime lab was saying, we've looked at that dress. There's nothing on that dress. Jeff maintained and said, well, you know, let's look at the dress. And they actually did some cuttings and found some DNA. And was they it found hair some, or touch DNA cell, touch, cell sloughing? It, well, it was semen. There was touch DNA. Oh, and there was Lord. blood that had never been tested. My goodness. So he sent it. He he got in contact with this California detective about the genealogy and was directed, and he did that. The detect uh, his name's Paul Holes, I think. Um, suggested these different places where he could go to and did and get those samples tested. He did it. It came back with a uh, a uh, a hit of, on a. Uh, a woman who had some sons came back on one of the sons that was related to our suspect, McCurley. How is it that and, but I'm it, sorry, Robert, go ahead. And then to get McCurley, now you've got to have his DNA. Now, didn't they go do what we used to call dumpster diving and go through the trash? And believe it or not, Bill, as a congressional investigator, you know, those, we did dumpster diving. It was amazing. I solve many cases. Oh, yeah. Well, and... and and when they were, when they got that information, they they thought about just going and talking to him and say, "Hey, can we have your DNA?" Well, this guy, had, I can't remember how old he is now. He's in his Seven, upper seventies. Seventy-seven. Um, I was concerned that being seventy-seven years old, having some medical issues, um, that he might check out so to speak, if mm -hmm. if uh, suspicion was cast in his direction. So we talked about that and decided, well, why don't, you know, why don't you go out there and get the trash bin and the recycle? And there were a bunch of needles in the recycle, obviously a diabetic. Um, so that was an easy mark. Yeah. Um, wow. It matched. Um, and they ended up getting the, uh, they had to get another sample to, to check for sure, and they did that, and it came back to him. How does law enforcement get access to these private DNA services that have to do with ancestry, and is there some controversy about that? Well, there there was uh, in the beginning, and I'm sure there will be— Privacy issues, people yeah, claim. There will be court issues, but most of those places now will require you to check off a box— Cooperate with law enforcement. Don't cooperate with law enforcement. The company, the genealogical companies, will before you submit your sample, you have to fill out that and and check the box. So, uh, yeah, I mean there'll there'll be court cases um, regarding that, but that's 
that's how that was solved. Wow. And uh, great work. We've got another one also that's uh, coming down. I can't really talk about yeah. it much, but the same way as pretty high profile of a woman in her mid fifties. And so, Bill, do you, will the day be here that you've got to go get a search warrant to go to Twenty Three and Me? There's something broad. Well, as you and I've learned in a in another matter, oh yeah, particularly. Uh, California, there are some other states. California particularly, if a company is based there and sometimes if they just operate it through there, through those big servers, they don't want anybody getting their records. And so uh, I think the time will come where it may be take, maybe it's an administrative subpoena, maybe not a full court subpoena, but it may be headed that way. But you know what? Fine. Uh, we'll do it. Law enforcement will do it the way they need to do it properly and get it. But uh, I don't think a state or federal grand jury subpoena will be denied. Uh, by these companies, but they certainly are resistant. A lot of them are. Well, and, and some of these are actually, like I said, put that consent. That's in a great the, idea. In the um, paperwork before they'll they'll test the sample. Great, David. Anything to wrap up cold case here for us? Um, well, I, I think it's um, it's. Still progressing, at least with Fort Worth PD, we do have a, a full-time officer there and a uh, uh, and the gentleman I just referred to, who was a reserve, and you know you're you're gonna saw you're gonna have dry spells, and uh, I think they're kind of into that now, other than the ones I've just talked about. And your book is Real Murder Investigation. And likewise, available uh, through Amazon. So Amazon far. and Barnes and Noble. Wonderful, amazing book. What would you say to the family member of a victim that's listening here? That look, I, w- I want them to take another look at this unsolved case. Well, I, how would you recommend they go about getting that, getting the attention of a department? Well, of course, it depends on the department. At least our department, they have people working there, and that's one of their obligations is to field calls from relatives who have concerns about uh, whether their case is ever going to get looked at again. And that that was one thing that when when I had the unit that, that we did all the time, that was one of the duties. It wasn't just investigating cases. It was... It was listening to people, giving them uh, status updates on the case, and seeing and going back and looking at that case and getting information as to whether there's something we can proceed with and letting the family know that and not keeping them in the dark. So they should call the department that has the case or could be working the case and persist. In other words, don't be inappropriate, but be persistent. And yes. seek seek an answer, right? Yes, and they, they will give an honest answer. And sometimes it's not what people want to hear, but at least they will take the time to sit down and explain why they can't go any further or what's preventing them, what they've done, and whether there's still uh, something to do. Did you have any cases, because Bill and I dealt with this, where the victim's body had never been recovered? Um, Were you able to break any of those out? Yes. Um, now, this wasn't a cold case, mm-hmm. but we, we did have uh, a case back um, 
20, mid 2000s, 20, 2005. It's very rare. In there. It's hard to do. Oh, yeah. Very it's rare. Very rare. But we made the case on it, and uh, um, it was a stranger case. A woman worked at a GM plant out in Arlington and uh, came home from work uh, on a Thursday night, and nobody saw her since then. And her body still hadn't been recovered. The guy who did it was a transient, staying in vacant apartments. Um, uh, apparently, he had got gained access to her apartment, and we found a lot of DNA in there. We found where she had vomited, found uh, uh, things that he had um, touched and used and drank out of and things like that. So. Um, we got on to him basically a few weeks later when he was um, acting suspiciously outside a convenience store in the same area of Fort Worth. And when the police approached him, he was in a stolen car he had carjacked in Dallas. They led him on a chase and uh, finally caught him. But in the trunk, he had a pistol and he had a bunch of ligatures in the in the trunk, so we got onto him pretty fast, and and he's dead now. He died in prison. Good. So it it does take to answer your question. It does take two main things. You have to prove the person did it, and you have to prove the person is dead. And and they'll say all day, well, this person didn't want to be dead, didn't want to be found, so. You know, they may not be dead. This may not be a murder. They may just be in hiding. So, and that's... that's you have to sort of prove a negative or yeah. overcome a negative. That's, that's an obstacle is to prove they're dead. But you do that by just perusing their daily activities and what they normally do and what they normally spend money on, whether they use credit cards, obvious things. But you got to go deeper than that and say, there is no way this person would have missed and then the totality of the circumstances with the, the suspect and everything else and, and that one worked out real good i wish every city in america every city in the world had this guy oh yeah as their homicide detective and david said an important thing here they gave chase they pursued him a chase there's a movement in city councils across this country to the you know, you got their plate number. Let them go. Don't, don't do the chase. Just let them go. They'll, sh you know, they'll show up at home. Well, they're they're not driving their own vehicles and stuff. But imagine if you'd let him go. Right. What would have gone with him? It's what happened in Macduff. They let him go that night. Yes. Yeah. Well, we could spend hours talking about what's going on now, but <laughs> that's a different conversation. It is. David. Thank you for joining us. The book is Real Murder Investigation. If you're a real true crime lover and you want to see the nitty-gritty details of how they do it, that's the book. It's on Amazon. Thank you for coming into this episode of True Crime Reporter Confidential with my partner, Bill Johnston, where we really do classic police procedurals. I think you've heard one here today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast, so please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. 
If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness. Please tell your friends who love true crime that they can bypass secondhand tales and get their true crime fix here with authentic stories straight from the source. Tell them that True Crime Reporter is one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement victims and even convicted criminals. And sign up for my free newsletter on the homepage of TrueCrimeReporter.com. It's your gateway to a world of knowledge and awareness in the realm of true crime and your personal safety. Thanks for listening, and until we meet again, be prepared, don't get scared. This is Robert Riggs reporting.